Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Chapter 6 of John. I'm going to do in this audio verses 60 through 71. What we see here is that the disciples, many disciples of Jesus, including the twelve, are with Jesus at Capernaum. They've just come back from the feeding of the 5,000. The crowd has finally located Jesus and come back to see him at Capernaum. The broader context is this. It's the Galilean ministry, which John usually doesn't record too much of. But in this case, he recorded Jesus' excursion down to Jerusalem during a festival where he healed a blind man, an invalid at the pool of Bethesda, identified himself with the father by saying he and the father were one, basically got the Jews all upset at him. Then he had to leave and go back to Capernaum. He went back, went to the wilderness around Bethesda and fed the 5,000 and then returned after having walked on the water and got back to Capernaum. And so that's where we are now. And we start with verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Well, what did, it, did the disciples hear? Well, the context of verse 60 is the immediate preceding few verses in the last audio. We talked about how Jesus said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Basically, you have to identify yourself totally with me because when you eat something or drink something, the molecules come intertwined with your molecules and there is such a tight union that you can't separate them out can't separate those molecules out. So Jesus is saying, you've got to identify yourself with me completely and utterly to follow me, to be my disciples. And then the disciples heard that and they say, well, you know, getting fed in the wilderness when we were hungry, that was cool. But this stuff about eating Jesus's flesh and drinking his blood, uh-uh, this guy is nuts. Now, remember, these guys are Jews and eating flesh and drinking blood. Nothing could be more illegal according to the Mosaic law than that. Of course, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. But I've, I've always, I think it's interesting that he used a metaphor that would really gross people out, gross his audience out. It seems like, according to the normal rules of audience appreciation, you don't do that. I mean, Jesus was not a sinner-friendly type guy, such as modern wussy-puss, pussy-wuss evangelicals are. He told it to them like it was. It didn't hurt him. People still followed him. It didn't matter how hard... He says he's going to get ready to tell them that one of you 12 is a traitor. He's going to betray me. He's going to tell them later on, if you want to follow me, you got to pick up your cross, take it to the place of your crucifixion. They're going to persecute you from synagogue to synagogue. He told them all kinds of bad things that were going to happen to him, and they still followed him, which shows what a unique person Jesus was, that people loved him so much they'd follow him even to the death. Name any religious figure that you can think of that people will do that for. Okay, so the disciple says this teaching is hard. Now, the NIV Study Bible said the teaching was hard to accept. It wasn't hard to understand. And I guess if you think about it, the metaphor would have made itself obvious to somebody who really applied himself to understand what Jesus is saying. But it was what was hard, really hard about it was to accept that you really got you really got to follow Jesus down to the last molecule. That was hard for people. And it was so hard, when we get six verses later to verse 66, we'll see many of his disciples just leaving Jesus, just abandoning him. Say, well, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 in the desert, that was cool. All the miracles, all the healing, that's cool. All the words of beautiful teaching, teaching without rabbinic authority, oh, that was cool. But now we're going to leave him because we don't like this hard stuff. Now, the disciples that heard this, 
who said this, this teaching is too hard, it wouldn't be the 12, because none of the 12 left Jesus. It wouldn't be the 70. John Gill denies it would be the seven. He just says it's one of the many people that were following Jesus, and I think he's, Gill is probably right. It could be that the 70 wouldn't be of such soft constitutions that they would run right when the going got a little bit difficult. Remember, lots of people following Jesus that are called disciples, not just the 12, not just the 70. In John 4, verse 1, we read this, When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, more disciples than John, that was back down in Judea, well, that means that lots of people are following Jesus, not just the 12 and not just the 70. We go to verse 61 and 62 in John 6. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, complaining about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending, ascending to where he was before? In other words, ascending to heaven, his pre-existent state before he was incarnate and came to earth. Now, why would that offend the disciples to see Jesus ascending? Well, because in order for him to ascend, he had to be killed first. And so this is he's referring to all the complex of events that happened at the crucifixion and the resurrection. And if you want to observe, he knew what was coming. <laughs> and he says, if you think this is bad, friends, it's going to get a lot worse. Jesus didn't mince his words. He, You know, I had a, a Chinese Bible student I was teaching on the Internet in Chicago, and she said her church, it was a Chinese church up in Chicago, she said, you know, we're always taught to teach, tell people all the good things about following Jesus. Should we mention the bad things? She asked it point blank because of something we saw in the book of Luke. And I said, absolutely, Jesus did it. You might as well tell people the truth. Reminds me of that Hillsong singer who recently said his faith was shaking. He's about to renounce his faith, and gosh knows how many other people he's going to cause to stumble. Well, he's in the prosperity message. Well, everything is all rosy and sweet, and there's never any problems, and, you know, and we don't ever want to talk about hell and the fact that we're enemies of God and the wrath of God is on us, even though that's all over the Scripture. We're not going to talk about that. And so then when the guy is confronted with the fact that some, some of people are going to go to hell, and when he's confronted with the difficulties of life, well, I just think I'll leave the faith. You might as well give them a realistic job preview, as they say in business, when you are trying to recruit people into the company of Christ. Now, it says Jesus knew this in himself, that his disciples were complaining. What does that mean in himself? In himself? John Gill says it means that he, it was because he was divine and omniscient, he just knew it. Well, John Gill always says that. But when Jesus knows something or sees something or perceives something, but it could be he just heard them complaining. It could be he looked at the, their countenances and realized they weren't happy. Or it could be they weren't answering him with a cheerful voice. I mean, you know, he was human. He could figure things out. We go to verse 63 and verse 64 of John chapter 6. The Spirit is the one who gives life, Jesus continues. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Well, let's just stop right there. Why did he say the flesh doesn't help at all? Well, the reason he, he said that is because he knows that the disciples are trying to interpret his words according to the flesh. They're thinking literally, flesh, blood, eat his flesh, drink his blood. Oh, and Jesus said, no, if you would listen to the Holy Spirit interpret my words, and instead of interpreting them in a carnal fashion, you will realize that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life as opposed to the flesh, which doesn't give life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Now, that's a 
interesting phrase here. Let me give you some paraphrases of it. The NIV Study Bible paraphrases it this way. The words that I have spoken to you are the spirit at work producing life. Or the spirit at work producing life. And you would think they would capitalize the S, but it's not. It's not capitalized in the Homer Christian Study Bible either, and I don't know why. John Gill paraphrased it this way. The spirit works when one eats and drinks of Jesus. John Gill says this, It is the spiritual sense only of my words that should be listened to in order to get life. Well, that's clear. They're, they're behaving carnally. They're listening carnally. It happens all the time. Nicodemus said, What, i got to go back into my mother's womb? It's like a time to be born again. Oh, oh, he's talking about uh, the leaven of the Pharisees because we didn't bring any bread with us on the boat trip back across the Sea of Galilee. The Samaritan woman, oh, water, I can draw water for the rest of my life, H2O, and drink it without having to go to a well. They, they're interpreting things carnally and not spiritually. They're not taking the point of the metaphors that Jesus has given them. All right, he, get it, he goes on to verse 64, but there are some among you who don't believe the but is in contrast to the one who listens to the Spirit and gets life. In contrast to that, there are some of you who don't believe because you haven't let the Spirit give you life. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and the one who would betray him. Now Jesus here is getting ready, is trying to teach his disciples about apostasy or falling away from Jesus, which is, happens all the time. It's happened, I've got friends and family that have fallen away from the Lord and it's very painful. And this was a painful time. And as we'll point out, many commentators say it was painful for Jesus to watch all, to watch a lot of these disciples turn away from him. Now, this is interesting. This verse says in 64 that Jesus knew from the beginning that the one who would betray him. He says in 64, but there are some among you who, among you who don't believe. Well, who's the you? Well, it probably refers to all those disciples he was talking about. Well, in general, he was talking to all the disciples, referring to all the disciples who were getting ready to leave him. But now he's focused his attention on the 12. It doesn't say he's speaking to the 12, but I think it's pretty clear he is. There are some among you who don't believe. He's talking about Judas. Because in the parentheses, John adds, Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe, and the one who would betray him. The one who, who would not believe, I think, is referring to Jesus. The one who would betray him is obviously referring to Jesus. Jesus knew it from the beginning. So he's getting ready to talk about apostasy. Now, going back to verse 40, uh, 63, he says, The Spirit is the one who gives life. John Gill makes an analogy. The Holy Spirit gives life to a man the way a human spirit gives life to a human body. If you have a human body without the human spirit in it, it is a worthless corpse, a lump of clay. But when the human spirit is in the flesh, in the body, in the lump of clay, it becomes a human being. Likewise, if a man, a living man, does not have the Holy Spirit in his life, he is a useless lump of clay. He's dead to God, he's dead to the Holy Spirit, dead to Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit comes into that man, he has life. The Spirit is the one who gives life. So there's your contrast, folks. You can be a dead piece of flesh. You can be a dead man spiritually, or you can be a live man spiritually. You can believe or you can not believe. It's just as simple as that. But unfortunately, not everybody believes. Now, this don't. when Jesus said that someone from the beginning who would not believe, they didn't believe despite all the teaching they had heard and the miracles they had seen. Now, this is a good reminder for us when we get depressed when people don't believe today i know i do i can't stand it when people don't believe in jesus i think they're nuts but it happens all the time it happened back then too even when jesus was right there in front of them working miracles and they could see him face to face and hear his words they still rejected him so you don't need to feel too bad 
I mean, I, of course, you're going to feel bad, but I mean, it's something we got to deal with and live with because if Jesus and his disciples had to deal with apostasy and falling away, so do we. Now, when Jesus said, there are some among you who don't believe, his, in verse 64, his words were affirmed. Two verses later, in verse 66, when his hearers proved his words to be true when they left him. We'll see that in a couple of verses. Now, when Jesus is talking to his 12, we assume that Judas was one of the 12 listening to his words. You wonder what he thought. There are some among you who don't believe. Now, you know, of course, Adam Clark says that, that Judas did believe, that uh, Judas did believe and therefore fell away from the faith when he apostatized, trying to push the Arminian idea that people can lose their salvation. Let me go back and show you Adam Clark, the Arminian's take on John chapter 6, verse 39, which says this, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. And Clark says, well, see, Judas was lost. God gave Judas to Jesus, and Jesus lost him, so that verse can't really mean what it says. And then he says, God may will a thing to be without willing that it shall be. <clears throat> that sounds like double talk it's not really but it comes awful close what our many, what Clark is saying is that God emotionally wants Judas to come be saved but since Judas didn't believe therefore God's justice has to be carried out so therefore as a matter of justice God wants it he want he, he wants it in one sense but doesn't want it in another sense and you know we get into some hair splitting here but at any rate in the course of his conversation Clark says that that when, let me quote him here, when a man is a worker together with the grace of God, he is saved. No, he's not. Judas wasn't saved. Where does it say the son of perdition was saved? All right, so I'm going to assume that Judas was not saved, listening to these words, knowing that Jesus knew that he was going to, that Judas was going to betray Jesus. So the question is, is why in the world would Judas keep on going? Well, maybe he was attracted by the crowds. Maybe he's thinking, well, there might be a big kingdom here. I might have a spot in the kingdom. Things are going good here. Might be able to make some money. Judas, of course, was money hungry. Maybe that's why he did it. Or maybe he had decided at this point to betray him. Maybe Jesus knew it in advance, but Judas didn't know it. I don't know. But it does say Jesus knew from the beginning. Knew from what beginning? From the beginning of his ministry after he had chosen Jesus? Or does it mean that he knew from the beginning from, even, from a time even before he chose Jesus? Well, if he knew before he chose Jesus, the question arises, well, why did he choose Je Judas? Why would he choose Judas knowing that Judas was going to betray him? Well, it could be because he knew that he had to die to offer the sins, to offer himself for the sins of the world. I don't know what the answer to that question is when he knew, but at some point in advance, he knew Judas was going to betray him. Jesus was not taken by surprise by the tragic events. I should say tragic, the almost tragic events of his life. He knew what was going to happen. Now notice the but here in verse 64. But there are some among you who don't believe. What's the contrast? Well, he's saying the Spirit is the one who gives life. I have spoken to you words of spirit, words that are spirit and are life. I've spoken to these words. I've done all these miracles. I've done all this teaching. But nonetheless, there are still some of you who don't believe. In other words, what does it take for you hardheads, your spiritual hard hearts out there, to believe in me? All right, so Jesus is now talking about the unpleasant fact of disbelief. We go to verse 65. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Now, Jesus is explaining hard-heartedness, spiritual hard-heartedness. The reason that people don't believe is because God has not given that person to Jesus. No one can come to 
Jesus unless it is granted, given to that person by the Father to come to Jesus. That's why people don't believe. They're not in the elect. Now, I know Arminians don't like that. I love chapter 6 of John. It's the anti-Arminian chapter. It's the chapter that drives Arminians nuts as they tie themselves in pretzels trying to explain the plain words of the Scripture. Now, this verse in John 6:65. this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him the Father. This is why, because the flesh doesn't help at all. He mentions in verse 63, the flesh doesn't profit anything. The flesh doesn't help at all. This is why I told you that you need to be drawn by the Father because the flesh isn't going to get you there. Isn't going to get you into the kingdom. So he's talking about flesh versus spirit, and the spirit is by the grace, it was granted by the Father. It's by the grace of the Father that somebody comes. And that's another thing we need to remember when we witness. If that person ain't in the elect, you ain't going to get him converted. If he is in the elect, you are going to get him converted, no matter how, how many objections he raises though i can't follow jesus i you know i believe in evolution uh, I, I believe in gay rights or whatever you know whatever nonsense they throw up there in front of you if they're in the elect they're going to come he's repeating what he said 21 verses earlier in john 6:44. no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him or drags him if you prefer that translation and i will raise him up on the last day we go to verses 66 through 68 from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Therefore, Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. From that moment, that phrase in the NIV Study Bible can be translated for this reason, or maybe both for this reason, or from that moment, doesn't make any difference. From this reason, a little bit. Well, it just shows that Jesus' words were causal they were the, his words is what caused the disciples to turn back and which kind of emphasizes the point that jesus didn't care what he said about people f turning away from him he told them the truth first worried about how many people followed him later are you listening rick warren are you listening willow creek now notice what it says that many of his disciples turned back it doesn't say they lost their salvation it just says they were following jesus at the time that's all it meant it didn't mean they were saved salvation hadn't happened yet pentecost hadn't happened yet so we don't want to go around saying, oh, we got people losing their salvation. No, the disciples didn't even know what salvation was at the time. Now, Peter, when he heard that, when Jesus said, you don't want to go away too, do you? In other words, Jesus is now thinking, hmm, maybe I'm going to lose the 12. It's like I lost all these other adherents. And Simon Peter, who is speaking as a spokesman, as he often did, as the NIV Study Bible points out, he was the one that answered, oh, we're not going anywhere. Where are we going to go to? I mean, what? We can't go to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Obviously, they don't have eternal life. Their teaching had no life at all. We can't go to John the Baptist. He was the forerunner only. Not the Messiah. His ministry had already decreased. I'm trying to think of whether he had been put into, uh, been beheaded yet. I'm not sure. But anyway, John the Baptist is no option to go, for Peter to go to. So, Peter, he says, I don't care how hard it is, Jesus, I ain't leaving you. Now, this is a good point for those who stumble over the hard sayings of Jesus. Some people stumble, but you don't have to. Peter didn't. And he was the one who ended up denying Jesus three times because of fear. But he held on. Persevere. Persevere when times get hard. And they will get hard. Now, the 12, capital T, 12, this is the first time in John that the word 12 is used. So we have a coherent body of disciples now. 
Now, when Peter says, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. Peter was not speaking of magic words, of course, not a formula. He's speaking of the general thrust of Jesus' teaching. He was referring back to verse 63, which I just read. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The words that I have spoken to you. And Jesus says, you have words of eternal life. The teaching of eternal life. The teaching I have spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus says. Now, when Jesus says, you are not going to go away too, are you? I mean, you could read that with a tone of voice as Jesus is just inquiring of them to test them. Or it could be that Jesus was feeling a little bit bad about it. This might be a little bit poignant, in other words. Remember, Jesus is fully human as well as divine. He wouldn't like being abandoned any more than any other human would. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown agrees with this idea and says, quote, evidently Christ felt the desertion of him even by those miserable men. <laughs> so no, nobody likes to feel abandoned. I remember when Paul, who was it, Demas has left me? I forgot who left him. People don't like being abandoned. It's a terrible thing. When a wife is abandoned by her husband, you see the movies, read the novels, how horrible it is. Jesus was being abandoned here. So I think that um, Jesus is actually feeling a little bit when he's looking at his disciples. Hey, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Peter assures him, no, we're not going to leave. John 6, verses 69 through 71, and we'll finish it up. Peter is speaking. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, to the, the, the twelve, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. So here Peter is saying, hey, I'm, we're going to follow you. We believe you. We, you have words of life. We're not going anywhere. And Jesus throws cold water on that and says, oh, yeah? Well, guess what, Peter? One of you is the devil. Of course, he's referring to Judas. Verse 71, he was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. So Jesus point out, told the disciples that one of them was going to betray Jesus. Now, they didn't really know what that meant yet. But it must have been a cold water on their affirmations of belief. We're going to follow you. We don't care if all the other disciples in the world leave you. We're going to follow. We're going to follow. Oh, yeah, really? One of you is going to betray me. Whoa. Now, Peter is showing that he believes Jesus probably is more than a teacher or a great miracle worker because he calls Jesus the Holy One of God. Now, Holy One of God is a phrase that's used in several places in the Scripture. For example, in Mark 1.24, what do you, this is a demon speaking now. What do you have to do with us, Jesus? Nazarene, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Luke 4:34. leave us alone again, demon speaking. What do you have to do with us, Jesus? Nazarene, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a synoptic parallel, of course. That's the same incident. Acts 2:27. because you will not leave me in Hades. This is Peter's quoting David from the Psalms in Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Acts 2.27, because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see the clay. Holy One, Jesus is our Holy One. He's separated from the world and dedicated to God because that's what holy means. Now, why did Jesus say one of you is the devil? Obviously, it's Judas was not literally the devil. But what he meant was Judas was acting in the spirit of Satan. So Jesus just identified him with Satan. That's the NIV study Bible. Now, a few comments on this. To me, it's remarkable how long Jesus put up with Judas in his ministry. He must have done so because he knew it was a part of the plan of salvation. That's my only speculation. I can't figure out why he would put up with him. I guess because he knew he had to be betrayed. 
Now, John Gill raises another question. Why did Jesus tell them about a betrayer so soon in the ministry? And his answer is, is so that the disciples, the apostles, the twelve, might not presume so much, too much, upon their faith and love. In other words, the apostle says, we, we love you, Jesus. We believe in you, Jesus. And then, oh, times get rough, and oh, we're going to have to leave. Like Peter, remember, Peter betrayed him, denied him three times. So he's trying to harden them up for what they have to face. And by golly, the training of the twelve was really in a, a, a process a difficult process to take these weak, ignorant fishermen and their friends and to train them into the the evangelists and apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ in the midst of incredible persecution by both the Jews and the Romans, which I submit to you is the theme of the book of Revelation. Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for the shock of Judas's apostasy, and you know that must have been a terrible thing to think that one of you that's gone around for three and a half years turned your Lord over to get crucified, that would have been hard to deal with. And there, But when Jesus puts this idea in, in their heads in advance, when it actually happened, they will remember, well, no, you know, he told us this was going to happen, so it's okay. He knew it was coming. That would encourage the disciples when things got bad. Jesus never gave them a hard time just to make them miserable. He's trying to prepare them. He's trying to toughen them up for the shocks that are coming in the in the future. What is Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, Judas Iscariot? What does Iscariot mean? It means a place from Kerioth, NIV Study Bible says, which is a place in Judea. It's mentioned in Joshua 15:25, Kerioth, Hezron, that is Hazar, somewhere in, in Judea. And then NIV Study Bible points out that Judas seems to be the only non-Galilean of the twelve. So the one guy not from Galilee is the one guy who betrayed Jesus. Now, why is it such a shocking thing that Judas would betray Jesus. Well, for one thing, he was one of the 12 apostles that Jesus chose. Why would anybody think he would betray Jesus? He was chosen by Jesus himself. Now, notice when I say he was chosen, actually, it says that in verse 70, Jesus said to them, didn't I choose you the 12? Ah, didn't I choose you the 12? And the Armenians like to say, see there, Judas was saved because he was chosen. No, he was not chosen as one of the elect. He was chosen as an apostle, as John Gill says. Let's look at this little word, yet, in verse 70. Jesus said, didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. In other words, it's such a shocking contrast. I choose on the one hand, yet on the other hand, I chose the devil. <laughs> yeah, that is a big contrast, isn't it? Jesus chose somebody who was the devil. Now, you know, you need to think, of, this happens a lot of times. You choose a business partner, you choose an elder in a church, he turns out to be a wolf. These things can happen. You can make mistakes like that. Jesus didn't make any mistakes, though. He he knew what he was doing from the beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished John chapter 6. We have covered verses 60 through 71. As the disciples stumble at the hard words of Jesus about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And Jesus says, yeah, you think that's hard? It's going to get worse. It's going to get harder. As he prepares his disciples for the shock, shocking events of the crucifixion. We will begin chapter 7 in the next audio. We'll take up verses 1 through 9, where Jesus is advised by his non-believing brothers to go down to Jerusalem and be a big political messiah. We'll take that up next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. 